is the Son of Brank podcast. This is episode one of the Son of Brank. I am the Son of Brank. I am not Brank himself. Brank is no longer with us. I will be channeling Brank occasionally, but most observations here are going to be my own. And I'd like to start with the word Brank and the basic idea of language. Brank is a nonsense word. B-R-A-N-K. It is not really located anywhere, and it's not used widely in any kind of lexicon in the past of art or literature. Brank is rather a unique word, despite its simplicity. And it was used and chosen by my father because it did fit his personality. There was a way that the letters came together that encompassed him, his name, and the way he portrayed himself to others. And Brank was one of those that he chose and stuck. He's had some other nicknames too, but I don't think I can repeat them in public. The idea of words and communication and language is really where we're having a lot of problems in today's worlds too. We have multiple definitions for the same word, depending on who you're talking to and what context they're trying to associate it with. I try to stick with the dictionary since there has to be a standard definition, otherwise we're not going to communicate at all. The idea of language is really rather arbitrary if you think about it. In most cases, we've assigned a set of syllables that sound like nonsense compared to the subject they're referring to. We associate those syllables with the subject through repetition. That means without hearing a language beforehand and having context with the repetition and the syllables and what they're associated to, we could listen to a foreign language and have no clue what they're saying except through their emotional content while they're dictating the language. And even that can be screwed up from what we're familiar from due to their having a different syntax. The Japanese will have an entirely different arrangement of where the nouns and the verbs and the adjectives go from English. So you can hear something that sounds angry, but not knowing what word it's placed on in the language is still not going to give you any clue as to what they're mad about. And... This is an artistic point that really makes language very valuable as a tool for communication. If used properly, that means you adhere to uh, proper definitions and only stray from them for artistic effect, or in many cases, humor. I like to use both myself. Then you'll find that the artistic effect um, and humor are literally dependent upon what the original word was associated with. And it's important to understand that we all have to have the same definition. So where people are trying to redefine words, you have to stop them. You can't further any kind of communication back and forth because you're not going to communicate it. What they're reassociating is an entirely different visual set. And this is why they can't communicate with you either. They don't understand where you're coming from. You don't understand where they're coming from because you could say a word and an entirely different set will come up of memories and past associations. And this is what makes language valuable as an art form. Now, some languages are going to be a lot more specific, and they're not going to have an awful lot of room for puns and humor. Latin is a good example. And this is why science and the scientific community uses Latin type of nomenclature for descriptives and naming of traits and species or anything, actually, when you think about it. When we, re we excuse me, <laughs> my, I was doing a little glossolalia. 
when we actually associate language in an artistic form, it has a very different effect because for art to work, it has to communicate emotion and you cannot communicate emotion someone hasn't already felt. So a word, an artistic word used that way is supposed to bring up a feeling that is shared by everybody, but the experience of that feeling is going to be widely varied. One person, it may be the love of a wife or a sibling. The other person, it may be a, an affection for a, a, a time or, you know, material objects like a car from past. The idea of art is to be able to use these to tell a story by building the emotion. But this can also be misused. If you think about it, the idea of uh, using poetry to try and transmit something that is not poetry, it can have a disastrous effect. This is, in essence, what Pavlov discovered and why propaganda is so effective. And mark my words, much of advertising uses many of uh, the abilities and things uh, propaganda has been developed with, uh, especially with uh, uh, some of the work with Pavlov did with the Soviets, although it does go back a lot farther than back then in history. There's an awful lot of history that shows uh, effective use of uh, uh, imagery and uh, victimization in order to uh, uh, promote an unhealthy cause. And where we're at right now, there is an awful lot of unhealthy causes being promoted. You'll hear somebody talk about truth as opposed to something you can verify. Now, the dictionary is going to define truth, and I'm not going to give you a specific definition. I'm just going to give you the gist. The truth is basically something anybody else can verify and know is there, a calculation. Go there and look to see if this is actually happening or if that person exists. Truth is something that we can all... Uh, test. And it goes beyond just, I said so, and you should go on the strength of my convictions. But the word truth has also been used effectively to cause people to disbelieve actual truth, actual verifiable evidence. It will be truth with a capital T, which turns it into a noun instead of an actual descriptive of what is going on. So they will say, this is the truth. And all other truths are secondary. You have to watch out for that. Because uh, once you're able to uh, disavow your own eyes, you're uh, in the control of whoever's in control of what's in place of your eyes. This you may recognize. The word truth is used an awful lot in religious and theology. And in some cases, what they're trying to uh, uh, promote is very sincere, but... This can also be highly misused. And here is why. If you were to take a book like, let's say something very technical. Let's say a table of tides and times of tides in and out for your location or maybe all locations. It's going to basically be a data set. It's going to be a bunch of graphs with numbers. It's going to use the names of places, which may be arbitrary words associated, but we'll all know what they mean because who's going to contest where Oregon is or New York is? It also is going to have uh, tables of specific times and specific rising tides, give or take maybe you know a few inches here and there. And these are going to be highly accurate because they are based on very solid scientific evidence that has uh, been learned long before the scientific revolution. 
just basic math, calculations of the moon and the sun going around the earth and the days and the months. The moon has a huge effect on tides, but the sun does a little bit too. I don't think the planets uh, going around the solar system have that much, so I would scoff at anything that's called astrology, especially now that they're 2,000 years out of sync. But I digress. So let's say you're reading this book of timetables. You have a great idea of exactly what is being said, and so will everybody else reading it. There's not a person on this planet who understands how to read a timetable, who doesn't know what it's saying, and and except in cases where you can contest it because physical evidence says otherwise, nobody's going to disagree. Nobody's going to argue about this particular place's times and tides. It's too real truth. You can verify it. Let's take a opposite of that. Let's say a book of poetry like Walt Whitman or something. I'm just pulling something out of a hat. I can't even quote some right now. <laughs> the poetry is going to be hugely... Uh, relying upon your own personal experiences and the words invoking them. And this is what poetry really is, whether it's in lyrics or something much more deep, uh, like telling something you can't put into words. It has to be felt. And this is, you know, the human condition. We all do this, so it's necessary. And this is why art is always necessary. The poetry that you read is going to invoke your own experiences and the person, other person reading it may have other experiences with it. Uh, they may have an entirely different set of experiences for that same word or the same concept of the phrase that has been led up to. And you get to this spot where people cry. You cry over something you felt. They cry over something you've never heard of, but they felt just as deeply or maybe deeper or maybe not as deep. A lot of theistic tomes rely heavily on poetry because they're trying to invoke in the emotional sense spirituality. But the flaw in this is that it has to rely on your personal experiences. And in many cases, they're trying to describe somebody's personal experiences so that you're not misled. But many of these tomes have been written in times completely different with ours, with an, a completely different experience set. So they're wide open to interpretation. And an awful lot of that interpretation comes from a person's own personal experiences. Therefore, one person can read the exact same phrase of a theistic tome, and I'm not specifying which one, and they will get peace and love, and they will not mess with anybody. And another person will find the key, the answer to unlocking their darkest desires. Some people will misuse them purposely, and some people will just be looking for a chance to have this thing that they've always wanted, but they know they shouldn't elsewhere. Finally, something says they can, even if it's a little bit vague. And so we can have, with the same phrase, huge amounts of variety of people with their own ideas of what it meant. And this has caused the splintering of religions all over the planet. This is because... Um, the fact that Latin, not Latin, that language is specifically about trying to associate a nonsense sound with a concept that has nothing to do with a sound. And this has to be learned. I suppose from this point, I have no solutions except to always trust the balance between your gut instincts, 
and the logic that your head has. Your gut may tell you something's going on, but just as many times it could be wrong, so you can't be certain about it with your gut. And this is why so many people are certain about highly erroneous things, and they're absolutely certain. There's no way you can convince them otherwise. That could be you. That could be me. We are all capable of being that certain. So we've got to be sure about the definitions of our words, and we have to press the other people we're talking to when they are misusing this to correct that so that we may properly understand the concept. And we have to tell them truthfully, this is why. We don't say, I don't like what you're saying or I disagree with what you're saying. I'm saying you're not coming across properly because you are associating with things that you see and I don't. And you're going to have to be able to express this in terms I can understand. And you're going to have to make as much of an effort as I am trying to listen and understand them. It's a two-way street. But that's only if you really want to be understood and you really want to understand the other person. If it's just you want to be output, well, why are you listening to this podcast? I'm not going to give you any helpful pointers there. And before I conclude this particular uh musings on language, I'd like to express how art is also music, and this is my strength. I use music the same way I use language. The sounds of the words can help me in trying to express an emotion, so I have multiple words I can pick from in order to express the same concept, but some words will invoke a better emotion, like brank, as opposed to meanderings of a, a muse. <laughs> Brank is a lot better. It's more abrasive too. And if you ever knew my dad, you'd know how abrasive he was. And he was also a musician and he used music the same way he used language. He was a wordsmith and a notesmith. And I am very highly experienced in being a notesmith. I can't say I'm successful, but I certainly understand an awful lot of the notes. And I'd like to express to you how you can use music as a language of emotion. The concept of associating a phrase, a nonsense word, a sound, a syllable with a specific object and repeatedly until somebody else gets this and they are able to associate it whenever you invoke that sound also works with musical languages, musical phrases. We could play a musical phrase that sounds like it's Chinese and everybody will get Asia. We can express a musical phrase in a minor key with a flatted third, and it will sound sad. This is specific to music. Minor keys sound sad. You cannot make a minor key sound happy in a chord, in a scale. It is, it is highly, highly in tune with something basic in our makeup. And this is not just in mankind. This is a lot of mammal species. They can communicate with a sound coming from their mouth. All kinds of emotions, even if it's the same sound. My cat does this frequently. And this actually is useful in songbirds and other things outside of mammals, and even whales and dolphins, although they're still mammals. The idea of music being a language of emotion is very strong. Where a minor chord is very sad, a major chord is happy. La da 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 da. You can't be sad when you're singing happy. This is my sad song. It just doesn't work. 
But if I turn that third to a minor, and that, mind you, is only one note of a chord. This is sad. This is a sad song. This is a happy scale. That's powerful. I love music for this reason. When we improvise, when we come up with uh, notes on the spot, we didn't plan what we're going to play. We have a general idea where we're going, but we didn't plan the specific notes out in advance and when they're placed. We're just making it up as we go along. Language does this too. When we learn language, we just learned a specific word, regardless of the syllables. Some words are simple, one syllable. Some will have four or five or seven, but that's okay. As long as it's universally associated with the same subject, we can communicate effectively. Music will do this automatically across language barriers with major and minor scales, too. It will also do this with the details that you can do to your scales, not just major and minor, although those are most important. Sometimes the key that you're in can have a little bit of a psychological effect. Some keys are better for happy and some keys are better for sad. Heavy metal loves E minor. Uh, more poppy songs can be in A. Folk was much in the key of G or F or C. Uh, same with pianos, actually. And this is universal across languages. You don't have to understand the words to understand the music to it. A seventh chord. La, 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 la. Has a kind of feel to it that doesn't sound anything like the number seven. It feels kind of diagonal, or maybe somebody added a little spice to it, but otherwise the chord's unchanged. La, 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 la. A major seventh has an entirely different feel, even though that number seven is still in there. But major just simply means that the seven's been boosted by one half tone, up a white key to a black or black to a white, or up one fret. La, 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 la. This has an entirely different feeling from the other seven. This is more melancholy. Like a rainy day. I should be playing these is what I should be doing. Yeah, this might be easier on a keyboard or a guitar. So here's a major chord. Here's a minor chord. Now you can hear it. Here is a major chord with a seventh. That's the one that I said was kind of diagonal. Or maybe you add a little spice. Bam! Here's an A. No, this is actually a B minor, B flat. Here's with a seven. With the seven. With a seven. Major seventh. These are beautiful. Here's your chord. Here's your major seventh. That's the one that I think is kind of melancholy. You're not sad. You're still happy. It's almost like, here, let's major seventh. A major seventh. It's not sad. It's still happy. 
but you know, it's not as happy as like. It's kind of like, you know, maybe it's a beautiful day, but there's a few clouds, maybe it's a little bit of rain. To me, this is sitting by the fireplace with a hot chocolate watching the rain. I love the rain. But you know, a minor chord's sad. What happens if you're sad on a rainy day? Your rainy day is the major seventh. The sadness is your minor third. When we put them both together, you're sad on a rainy day. Ooh. You know, that sounds like you want to kill yourself. <laughs> My life is over. <laughs> major seventh with a minor third. So don't combine a minor third with a major seventh. There's an awful lot of conflict in there. And the same goes with your life. Don't be sad on a rainy day. There's an awful lot of conflict. If you're really depressed and it's a miserable day, find something to make you happier because you can hear it in the chord. That could hurt. That could give you, you know, <laughs> illnesses because you're not healthy. Your heart is broken. Well, music is catharsis for me. If my heart is broken, I play that chord, and my heart's still broken, but the chord expressed it, and it doesn't feel as bad. It's kind of like counseling. You talk to a counselor, I feel so awful since she left me. She took my dog and gave him away for free. See you next week.